1 Kings and chapter 2, page 302 in your Bibles. 1 Kings and chapter 2. And we're looking this evening particularly at verses 13 to 46. I'm not going to read that in its entirety now. We'll be breaking it up and I'll read the relevant sections as we come to them. But I will read what we find in verse 12 and then in verses 45 and 46. In verse 12 we read, Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his kingdom was firmly established. And then in verse 45, words of Solomon spoken with regard to Shimei. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. And then the conclusion, so the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shimei down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. We've read there three of the occasions in, second, in 1 Kings chapter 2, three of the occasions where we read in this chapter that the kingdom was established. The other occasion is in verse 24. Now therefore as the Lord lives who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who has established a house for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. These verses remind us of the promises of God to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, promises to David concerning David's throne, David's kingdom and David's house. Promises that are ultimately fulfilled not in David, not even in Solomon, but ultimately in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are told on a number of occasions that Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, sits upon the throne of David. The theme of this chapter is how the kingdom of God was established under Solomon with David's counsel, although David dies in the midst of this chapter. The theme is the establishment of the kingdom, but we must remind ourselves it is the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom that is here on this earth. It has earthly kings, David and Solomon, but it is nevertheless the kingdom of God. He is the unique Sovereign Lord. They are a unique people. They are a people whom God has redeemed out of the land of Egypt. They are different to everyone else on the face of the earth. They have a land. They have a king. They exist for the sake and for the glory and honour of God. And yet it is not perfect. David is not perfect. Solomon is not perfect. These are men who are sinful still. 
And as we read on in 1 and 2 Kings, we know how sin gathered momentum and eventually the ten tribes were taken into exile in Assyria and then the two remaining tribes into exile in Babylon. But it is God's kingdom on earth. And how is it established? It is established by righteousness. It is established by righteousness and there are two strands. We looked at the first strand last week and that was in verses 1 to 4 where David gives a charge to Solomon to walk before God in truth with all his heart and with all his soul. It's there in verse 4. By obedience to God's word, by Solomon's own integrity and his own righteousness and not merely as David's son But this exhortation is given to him as the king who will succeed according to the promise given to David. So it's not just as a private individual, but it is as David's son who is the king. So it will be established then by the personal example and integrity of Solomon himself. He is to be a righteous man. He is to live by the word of God. He is to obey the law of Moses, particularly as it relates to kingship. But then there is a second strand. Not only must there be personal righteousness as in Solomon himself, but there must be justice or public righteousness in the kingdom. The kingdom is established by righteousness, both individual righteousness and by public righteousness. It's established by the removal then of those who are David's enemies, Solomon's enemies and God's enemies. And it's important to underline that they are not merely David and Solomon's enemies. These are the enemies of God himself. And justice and righteousness must be and will be displayed. But not only in dealing with God's enemies, but mercy is shown, and kindness is shown, and in some respects you may speak of the rewards of righteousness to those who have shown kindness, and those who have proved loyal to God's King. Do you remember how David spoke of this? In verse 7, show kindness, David says to Solomon, to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Barzillai and his descendants were to be rewarded for their loyalty to the Lord's anointed, to David. So this is righteousness. It has, that has two aspects to it. The dealing with those who live their lives contrary to God's standards and object to in some way and oppose in some way the Lord's anointed king and those who on the other hand support and recognize and are loyal to God because they are loyal to God's appointed king. But this remainder of this chapter from verses 13 to 46 is taken up largely with those who have opposed the Lord's anointed king. There is, in verses 26 and 27, 
reference to Abiathar, the high priest, who is not put to death, but is banished. He is exiled from, uh, from Jerusalem, and he is stripped of his high priestly office. But then, in verses 13 to 25, we read of rebellious Adonijah, then in verses 28 to 35, we read of bloodthirsty avenging Joab. And then verses 36 to 46, we read of the cursing Shimei. And each of them are put to death by the direct commandment of Solomon. And it is Benaiah who carries out that public execution. Now before we look at those three men in particular, we have to ask ourselves first of all the question and answer it, is this really the righteousness of the kingdom of God? Do you really mean to say, does the Bible really teach us that in God's kingdom men are put to death? I'll put it as bluntly as that. We live in a day and an age where Capital punishment is regarded as barbaric. People say, where is forgiveness? If God has forgiven David, why doesn't David forgive Joab, for example? Why then do we have to see this kind of brutality displayed in the pages of the Bible? Capital punishment is not true capital punishment if someone is put to death out of a spirit of revenge, out of a spirit of hatred, is some kind of personal vendetta. That is not biblical capital punishment. Joab had taken revenge and he had killed two men, as we will see, in cold blood. Two innocent men. Abner and Amasa. Neither David nor Solomon are acting in the same way. This is not a spirit of revenge. This is not a spirit of hatred. This is not a personal vendetta on the part of David and then giving instructions to his son Solomon to do what he was unable to do because he hasn't got the strength now to do it. There's no indication anywhere in the text that David and Solomon are exercising a personal vendetta motivated by revenge and by hatred. Now, David and Solomon are beaten with rods by many, or not many, by a number, a small number of modern commentators. They accuse David and Solomon in particular, of having selective memories, choosing to see the evil they want to see and acting accordingly, only taking oaths seriously when it is convenient for them to do so. Solomon in particular is accused of callousness and the systematic elimination of all three men. He is accused of ruthlessness Quote, pursuing power by all means of his disposal. 
And the conclusion is, quote, what you have here is a sordid tale of power politics thinly disguised as a morality tale. Furthermore, some of these commentators then have a go at Nathan, Benaiah, Zadok the priest, and they are presented as shrewd and ruthless advisers. There's no evidence in the text for that at all. And the public executioner, Benaiah, is described as a bloodthirsty man. And I ask the question, is he then in the same camp as Joab, who murdered two men in cold blood? That's bloodthirstiness. Benaiah is not carrying out the same kind of deed. His actions are different. His motives are different from that of Joab. Now, this whole question is not something that we can gloss over. This is not something that is isolated here in this passage of Scripture, but it is something we need to address. We need to remind ourselves that we are reading the Word of God. This has come to us under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Holy men who were moved by the Spirit wrote these things down for our learning, for our instruction. Is it really a sordid tale of power politics, thinly disguised as a morality tale? Is that what the Word of God is? No, not for one moment. Albeit we are dealing with sinful men, David and Solomon. They are not perfect, but they act fundamentally as righteous men. And the facts remain, first of all, this is the kingdom of God. David and Solomon are rulers, they are kings appointed by God over his people for his glory. And the kingdom will be established by righteousness and it is God who sets the standards of righteousness. Not modern commentators, God sets the standard of righteousness. Our Lord Jesus Christ will eventually rule in absolute righteousness all the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom is ordered and established, we find in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. And he will reign with judgment and with justice. And it is a measure of that judgment and justice that we see here reflected in 1 Kings chapter 2. This is the righteousness that Christ's kingdom establishes. That fact remains. And then there is another fact that remains. That there can never be any peace, any prosperity in any kingdom, let alone David and Solomon's kingdom, which is the kingdom of God on earth, where there is no justice, where there is no righteousness. What is the option? Anarchy. And then there is another fact which remains, if David and Solomon are guilty of these things that I have outlined, if they are ruthless and callous, then it makes a mockery of David's charge to Solomon in the opening words of this chapter. Especially the words at the end of verse 3. Let me read from verse, the beginning of verse 3. 
David says, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And that includes what happens from verse 13 on. It includes other things as well. If you have men who are sitting, as it were, on the throne that God has, giving, has given them, speaking in this way, and then acting in the way that they are accused of acting, you have a case of gross hypocrisy. And you have to say, where is the righteousness then of the kingdom of God? They say one thing and do another. Is that the way we are to read our Bibles? I don't believe so for one moment. If verses 1 to 4 draws forth an amen from our hearts, an echo of approval, but then we look at the rest of the chapter and say, that's sordid, that's just a thinly disguised morality tale, then I would say we have a problem. You have a problem, I have a problem. Because that is not reading the word of God and receiving it for what it is. The word of God. Inspired by the Spirit of God. I do not for one moment then think that we can agree with these modern commentators who suggest that this is to me a callousness and ruthlessness and the result really of revenge and hatred. That is just inconsistent with everything that David has set out in these opening words of this chapter in his charge to his son Solomon. There is one other reflection too. At least one commentator thinks that there is an implied fatalism here in this chapter. He says, well look, David and Solomon are predestined to be kings. The security, the establishment of the kingdom is never in doubt, no matter what they do, whether it's good or bad or whatever it is. And no matter what anybody else does, it's not going to alter the fact David is king, Solomon is to be the king after him. That's according to the decree of God. So, we have to take it or leave it. That's their, basically their kind of attitude. But that's fatalism. That's not Bible-believing Christianity. If you establish the kingdom on that kind of basis, on the basis of hypocrisy, then you have to say, David, Solomon, Joab, Shimei, Adonijah, they're all tarred with exactly the same brush. There's no difference between them. And that is not what our Bibles are saying at all. David and Solomon are not sinless. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, is never established by wickedness. That is what these modern commentators are essentially saying about Solomon. This is not then the case. The fact is that God in his grace makes David first to differ and then Solomon to differ. God in his grace chooses David. God in his grace chooses Solomon over against Adonijah. 
It's not because David and Solomon are better than these men. David has sinned. But the difference with David is he found forgiveness. He cried to God for mercy. And Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 tell us that he discovered the forgiveness of God. He discovered what it is to be accounted righteous in the eyes of God. But this kingdom, this kingdom of God over which David first ruled and then Solomon ruled, is a kingdom of righteousness. It's a kingdom of justice. It's a kingdom where peace reigns. Solomon's name means peace. And there is a legal process which we see in evidence here in this chapter where rebels against God are to be punished, where murderers and assassins are brought to justice by God and those who curse the king's anointed are called to account and must answer for their deeds before God. Does God turn a blind eye to unrighteousness? He did not do so with David. He sent a prophet and confronted him with his sin. And brought him to his knees. And broke his heart. He did not turn a blind eye either to the later unrighteousness of Solomon. And he certainly does not turn a blind eye to those who oppose him. Those who are his enemies. They meet with God in his righteousness and in his justice, answerable for their own wicked deeds. The kingdom is established, but it is established by the removal of David's enemies, the removal of Solomon's enemies, the removal of God's enemies, because David and Solomon are the Lord's anointed, the Lord's appointed kings and representatives on earth. Now it's taken some time. You may never bother to read these commentators. And I would say don't waste your time with them. But as someone who has to grapple with these things, I have to read these things in order to answer some of these questions. These questions come up. People may not read these commentators, but they immediately read something like this. Barbaric, they say. You can't read the Bible. You can't believe in a God who allows that kind of thing to happen. Well, we need to have an answer to that. That's why I've spent some time trying to deal with this. Is this the righteousness of the kingdom of God being spoken of here in 1 Kings 2? Yes, it is. And now I want to move on then secondly to consider with you the righteous removal of David's, Solomon's and God's enemies. The righteous removal as you read through these scriptures, and we will read through each section as we take each man in turn, ask yourself, can I hear any words here that indicate these men are broken-hearted and contrite and seeking mercy and forgiveness? There is a stunning silence. You might say, well, Joab goes and lays hands on the horns of the altar. Isn't that a cry for mercy? We will see that it is not in a moment. We may not be able to answer every single question, but I believe the main thrust of what we are reading this evening is the righteous removal of David's, Solomon and God's enemies. Let us first of all look at rebellious Adonijah. 
rebellious Adonijah. Let's read from verse 13 to verse 25. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, Say it. Then he said, You know that the kingdom was mine, and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now I ask one petition of you, do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. And he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you that he may give me Abishag the Shunanite as wife. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak to you, for you to the king. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. The king said to her, Ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, That Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother's wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. For him and for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has established a house for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. Do you read anywhere that this man was seeking mercy? and forgiveness for his act. Remember, this was the man who, despite knowing that Solomon had been appointed by the Lord as king in succession to David, this man did not accept that, led a rebellion, proclaimed himself king, and even though he had been put under house arrest, as it were, by Solomon, He would not let the matter drop. He had something of Absalom's blood in his veins. Why was he put to death by Solomon? The reason from the texts makes it clear. He makes a further attempt to advance himself. It appears he has not yet given up his claim to the throne, that he has not really, in his heart of hearts, accepted that Solomon is the appointed successor to David and not him. Yes, he says, the Lord has appointed him. But someone can say those things and not really recognize it and accept it in their hearts. David had said nothing about Adonijah to Solomon. But Solomon had told Adonijah, if wickedness is found in you, Adonijah, you will die. Verse 52 of the previous chapter. And I say, he placed him under house arrest. Now, Adonijah comes to Bathsheba with this request. 
The request is that he can have Abishag, the Shunammite, as his wife. Now, if you were just reading this chapter, you might say, well, what's the big deal? We're not quite clear, if I can just say this before I come on to deal with Adonijah, we're not quite clear what Bathsheba's motive is. Does she aid him? Is she going to plead genuinely on his behalf? Is she sympathetic to his claim? Or is she saying, I'll I'll let this run its course, knowing what will be the outcome? We're not told. But Adonijah requests Abishag as his wife. Now, this was the woman, the young, attractive woman, whom the elders of Israel had given to David in order to keep him warm because he was old and frail. We question the wisdom of that, but this is something more cultural than we would be able to accept. But the fact is that Abishag, even though David had not known her intimately, even though he had not had sexual relations with her, that woman would have been considered as part of the king's concubines. And to make a request to have her as your wife was as good as saying, just like Absalom had done, as good as saying, I still have a claim to the throne. It was Ahithophel who had advised Absalom to go and lie with his father's concubines in public so that all Israel could see that he was claiming the throne. It was an act that symbolically said, I want the throne. I have a claim to the throne. And that is immediately how Solomon understood the request that came via Bathsheba. Verse 22, Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, for him and for Abiathar and the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Solomon read immediately what was really going on at this point. Adonijah's action was further rebellion against God, against God's promise, against what God had already confirmed and God had already established. Solomon was the king. That is why Solomon says, and it is not a personal vendetta, as the Lord lives, verse 24, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who has established a house for me as he promised. It's what God has already done on the basis of his judgment. Adonijah shall be put to death today. Adonijah is portrayed as an enemy of God, as an enemy, one who is setting himself against the Lord's appointed king. It is a further act of rebellion. He will not accept God's promise. He will not accept God's anointed servant, Solomon. He will not accept the decision of his father, David, even though David has now died. And even if Solomon is totally wrong, which I don't believe he is in his interpretation of Adonijah's request, you would not say that Adonijah's actions 
were exactly those of a wise and righteous man. Could there be peace and prosperity in the kingdom of God while this man continued to rebel? He would not submit himself to God and to the will of God expressed in the kingship of Solomon. He will not recognize the Lord's anointed. Therefore he is put to death. He is an enemy of God. That is Adonijah. Let's look now at the bloodthirsty avenging Joab. Verse 28 to 35. The news came to Joab that Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. And Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought back word to the king saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said to him, Do as he has said. Strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head, because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he, and killed them with the sword. Abner the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Japheth, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab, and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah the son of Jehoiada went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah the son of Jehoiada in his place over the army, and the king put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. I would suggest to you that this is also a righteous decision on the part of the Lord's anointed king, Solomon. Joab was a guilty man. David had given counsel to Solomon before he died. It is there in verse 5. This man has killed Abner and Amasa. These were personal acts of revenge, premeditated murder. Abner had been taken out because he had killed Joab's brother Asahel in battle. And David had said he was guiltless. The blood guiltiness was Joab's. You can read his words in 2 Samuel chapter 3 verses 28 to 29. Amasa had died because David had replaced Joab and Joab took affront. And so Joab killed Amasa. And he did it in a premeditated fashion. David had said of him in verse 5, that he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. If you want to know what a bloodthirsty man is, Joab is your man. Here is a man who was without seeming conscience 
out of revenge and out of hatred, was prepared to kill innocent men. Now Abiathar had also sided with Joab and Adonijah. But because Abiathar had been faithful to God in past, faithful to David rather, in past, he was not put to death. He was removed from the priesthood and notice it does say very clearly in verse 27, Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest of the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Here is a final judgment upon the wicked house of Eli. Eli's sons were wicked. And Abiathar is removed from the priesthood. But Joab is different. Now he fled realizing that he was in deep trouble. Maybe his conscience finally got up with, caught up with him but he was a man who was afraid and so he runs into the tabernacle and grasps a hold of the horns of the altar. Now is that a cry for mercy that Solomon refuses to see? No. Joab had no right to go and seize hold of the horns of the altar. Asylum applied only to those who had killed accidentally not someone who had done it and premeditated it you will find that in Exodus 21 13 and 14 we haven't time to turn to it this evening the responsibility for the blood of Abner and the blood of Amasa lay on, jo on Joab's shoulders and on no one else and Solomon says, verse 33, their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. This man must be removed because he is an enemy of righteousness. He is an enemy of David. David was unable to deal with him. He was too strong for him. David left Solomon to carry out that execution. But Joab's death is divine retribution through a judicial punishment. The guilt of Joab is established beyond any doubt. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace, not a kingdom of blood. And so Joab is removed as an enemy of God, as the enemy of David, as the enemy of Solomon. And then finally consider cursing Shimei. Verses 36 to the end. The king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, The saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened at the end of three years, the two slaves of Shimei ran away to Ashish, the son of Marcha, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei arose, saddled his donkey, went to Ashish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. 
And the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, No for certain, that on the day you go out and travel anywhere you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said moreover to Shimei, You know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. This was the man who had cursed David, the Lord's anointed, when David was fleeing from Jerusalem because of Absalom's rebellion. You can read of his actions in 2 Samuel chapter 16. This man was of the house of Saul. He had hurled stones and dirt at David and his men and he accused David of being a man of bloodshed. A worthless man. He said to him, pronouncing a curse on him, You are caught in your own evil. The Lord is avenging you, David. You have brought all the blood of house of Saul upon yourself. And he cursed him. And yet we know from the record of Scripture that David, that was the last thing. He had never laid one finger upon Saul, despite all Saul's personal hatred of David. Twice he had occasion when he could have killed him, and he did not take those. Barzillai, on the other hand, in the rebellion of Absalom, had showed kindness to David, but not Shimei. Shimei had uttered a malicious curse against the house of David, against the Lord's anointed. He was a man who was setting himself up against God, and against God's representative on earth. David had not had him removed. But his last words to Solomon were, do not let him go down in peace to his grave. Solomon placed him under oath. He was to remain in Jerusalem. Do not go out from there anywhere, he says, verse 36. You are to remain within the walls of Jerusalem. Shimei keeps his word for a couple of years, two or three years, and then the situation arises where two of his slaves run away. And he poo-poops the oath that he took. But the pressing circumstances should not have made Shimei break his oath to Solomon. Shimei brought the judgment of God down on his own head. Solomon has him put to death, not only because he has broken the oath to Solomon, but because of his wickedness that he did to his father David. And he says quite clearly and pronounces judgment, the judgment of the Lord upon him. The Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. Verse 44. Solomon was just. Solomon was righteous. Solomon was wise in his actions. We've looked then at what happened to Adonijah. We've looked what happened to Joab. We've looked at what happened to Shimei. We've also reminded ourselves how Abiathar was also punished and was exiled. 
We've also seen the kindness that was to be displayed to Barzillai. These are the kinds of ways in which the kingdom of Solomon is established. The deeds of David and Solomon are not ruthless, they are not callous, they are not done in the spirit of revenge and hatred and malice. The hatred and revenge and the malice belongs to the enemies of David and Saul and God himself. The actions of David and of Solomon are not to be likened in any way to the actions of a man like Ahab, who had Naboth killed, plotting with Jezebel his wife, and approving of that in order to take his vineyard, and he has him removed. He brings a company of liars in order to bring false charges against Naboth and has him removed. That's unrighteousness. And God brought judgment upon the house of Ahab and Jezebel for that. David and Solomon are not like that. David and Solomon are not to be placed in the same light as Shimei and Joab and Adonijah. They are different. This is not a political purge of all rivals. This is the righteousness of God that establishes the kingdom of God. Men will reap what they sow. That is what we read here in this chapter. These men brought judgment down upon themselves. Did we find any of them asking for mercy? Did we find any of them suing David and suing Solomon and suing God for mercy? Did we find any evidence that they wanted forgiveness? None whatsoever. These men went on in their wickedness. And it was the Lord who was returning the wickedness on their own heads. These men, if I may put it this way, did not want Christ as king. They did not want the Lord's anointed as king. Ultimately, they were rebelling against Christ, who is the rightful heir to the throne of David. I want to briefly, though, bring this home to us and ask a question thirdly. How can anyone, how can you, how can I then be secure in God's righteous kingdom? If the kingdom of God, if the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of righteousness, how can we be sure of our place in that kingdom? We may not have been guilty of Adonijah's rebellion, of Joab's bloodthirsty revenge, or of Shimei's cursing. But without any question, the Bible says, all of us by nature are God's enemies. And our Bibles say that Jesus Christ will reign and all his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. I could spend the next hour in going through scripture after scripture after scripture to establish that. I'll just give you one Old Testament quotation in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
This is David speaking of David's Lord. This is David speaking of Christ. And he's saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And that is what David's last words are about. And that is what Solomon's first words as king are about. Rule in the midst of your enemies. But we are enemies by nature. We are enemies. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parable of the tares, the weeds and the wheat. And Jesus says to his disciples with regard to the tares, the angels will gather out all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Men like Adonijah, men like Shimei, men like Joab, men like you and men and women like us. Because we have practiced lawlessness. We have broken God's laws and God's commands. We have all sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us we are ungodly. We are sinners. We were enemies. By nature we are the children of wrath. We are alienated from the life of God. What stands then between us? Who will stand between us and the righteous judgment of God? It is the grace of God in Jesus Christ the King. He is the only one who stands between us and the righteous judgment of God. Where is our safety? Where is our security? How are we going to stand in the kingdom? How are we going to find our place in this kingdom if it is a kingdom of righteousness? And righteousness is the very thing that we are not by nature. Our safety and security does not depend upon any pretended obedience to the law of God. It is as we recognize and submit to God's own King, Jesus Christ. The end of Psalm 2 speaks of kissing the Son, lest he be angry. It speaks of recognizing him and submitting himself, ourselves, to his authority. And at the end of the day, where is our security and our safety? It is not in my righteousness or yours. It is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And it is not until we recognize that all our righteousness is in Christ. It's not until we recognize that that we cease to be an enemy of God. An enemy of his dear beloved son. Adonijah was reluctant and refused to acknowledge Solomon. Joab had shed innocent blood and troubled the peace of the kingdom. Shimei cursed the Lord's anointing. They were the enemies of Christ. They were the enemies of God. They rose up against Christ. They rose up against God. And Psalm 2 says, it is a vain thing to rise up. It is a foolish thing. It is a stupid thing to do. He who sits in the heavens laughs at such vain attempts. You think of Saul of Tarsus. The voice the voice of accusing, the voice that pins his conscience. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're attacking the church. You're attacking those who I have died for, but you are persecuting me. That is what these men are doing. 
But our, the grounds of our safety and security rely entirely upon Jesus Christ and the grace that came to David, the grace that came to Solomon, and the grace that comes to all who hear and who trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Of whom else is it said in our Bibles? When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his son. We have read of the death of Adonijah and of Joab and of Shimei, but there is no atonement in their death. They died for their sin. They died for their wickedness. Jesus had no sin. He died for your sin, for my sin, for my evil, for my wickedness, for my unrighteousness. He bore my guilt and he shed his blood. And God is pleased. To impute righteousness to the one who believes in Jesus Christ and trusts in Jesus Christ. It is only because Christ proclaims peace through his own death on the cross that I have any peace in my own soul and any certainty and any security that I will take my place in the kingdom of God. Accounted righteous by the blood and by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See Jesus Christ then as your peace. Confess your sins. Something these men we've looked at tonight never did. But David did. Confess your sins. And cast yourself upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Christ is our righteousness. But there is one other thing. That righteousness establishes us and our standing before God and his judgment throne. But let us remind ourselves that that same Lord Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom in righteousness. We have seen the promise that was given to David is being fulfilled in Solomon and will be fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ and in that kingdom there will be ultimately no wickedness. You read at the end of your Bible that all the sexually immoral, all the impure, all the unclean things will be cast out. The wicked will not prosper. Unrighteousness will not prevail. Shimei has cursed David when he was in distress. He was no friend of Christ. Joab shed innocent blood and was a bloodthirsty man. Again, no friend of Christ. Adonijah rebelled against the Lord's anointed. No friend of Christ. Has not God said, even in the days of Abraham, Abraham, I will curse those who curse you, and yet in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There is one of the great promises of salvation that comes to fulfilment in Christ. Men will continue to curse Christ. Men will continue to raise themselves up against Jesus Christ. But Christ shall reign. Isn't that what our Bible says? Doesn't the Bible say that Christ must reign and all his enemies will become his footstool? That is hard to believe when you hear and see what is going on in this world. 
When you see how we are belittled and how we are held in contempt and how dishonour is heaped upon us. There's nothing new in that. That's been going on for centuries. But what encouragement then can we draw? Well, go back to your Bibles. What happened to Balak who tried to curse Israel and use Balaam? What happened when Ahithophel gave counsel and turned away from David and gave counsel to Absalom? God brought a judgment answering the prayer of David. His curse came to nothing. Haman wanted to destroy all the Jews. And what became of Haman? What will become of those who oppose Christ? What do our Bibles tell us? They shall not succeed. Christ will reign. Ask Sennacherib and ask the 185,000 who perished in his army when they dared to raise their fist against the God of heaven. What will become of those who raise their fist against God's appointed Son, the King, King Jesus. Men heaped scorn and shame and contempt upon him and called him a blasphemer. To what end? Yes, he died. But then God vindicated him. And by that very death and by that very resurrection from the dead, God built and established his kingdom through his Son, Jesus Christ. And God provided the very way through that death and through that resurrection by which sinners like you and like me might be accepted in that kingdom and take our place. It's down to grace. It's down to grace. That's all that makes us differ. But it is everything that makes us differ. The grace that was shown to David, the grace that was shown to Solomon is the grace that now is shown to us and flows to us so richly so fully in Christ we come tonight to the Lord's table these, this bread and this wine these are the emblems of that peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ